please turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20, verse 17. Matthew chapter 20, verse 17. If you'd like a title for today's message, Great Ambitions. Great Ambitions. Matthew chapter 20, verse 17. We're continuing in our series through Matthew. I actually mapped out the rest of the series. We will finish the end of August next year. (laughs) So keep holding your breath. It's coming. Um, And that's without taking too much of a break. So there you go. Um, It's going to be good, though. This is the third prediction Jesus makes. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons. And kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the 10 heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called to them, I called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Would you pray with me? Our God and Father, we ask that you may bless the preaching and reading of your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Ambition is, in some ways in Australia, a bit of a dirty word. Uh, If you live in the U.S., ambition is part of the U.S. dream. It's part of the psyche of America uh, to start a new land, the home of the free, the land of the brave, uh, take over, build it big, make it amazing. Uh, I, I like listening to a podcast called Business Wars, and there's one called Sports Wars, and the theme of it basically is, how can I be the most amazing Uh, business person or sports person and the the narrative is basically all-out success, all-out drive, all-out ambition. But in Australia that's not really our cultural you know story, that's not what we celebrate. Uh, In fact uh, we you know we have what's called the tall poppy syndrome that if anyone is too ambitious and pops their head up above the rest we love to cut them down and make sure they know you're not that great buddy. We love the underdog 
But as soon as the underdog becomes the top dog, we don't like them anymore. We want people to be the battler, to be struggling and just getting ahead, but not getting too far ahead. Uh, In 2018, CGU Insurance conducted a survey which they called the Ambition Index. And here's what they found. They said that uh, 70% of us say we don't like to talk about our own ambitions for fear of being labelled a bragger. So what they found is that a lot of people are ambitious, but we don't like to talk about our ambitions because culturally, that's not what you do in traditional Aussie culture. Now, I think as more and more cultures come in, it's changing a little bit, and you notice that when you meet someone who wasn't born and raised in Australia, they're often not afraid to talk about their ambitions or their achievements. I met a, a, a father of one of the ki- friends of my kids, and he was like, yeah, I do this, I got my MBA, I did this, I've started this business, and this was all in two minutes of meeting him. I was like, whoa, that's very different. In Australia, people are like, oh, yeah, I, I just have a job. Uh, <laughs> that's kind of as far as they go, and I, I hate it. I'm struggling. That's about what it's like. Uh, most Australians in the research said that we have a culture of negativity towards ambition. Interestingly, half of Australia's adult population wants to start their own business, but only 6% have. And most, or half of those said that you know, fear of failure was the biggest reason as to why they would stop doing it. So deep down, as Australians, what they found is we are ambitious, but culturally we don't support it, culturally we don't promote it, uh, and in fact, we're actually quite negative towards it. What about you? Where do you fit in the ambition index? Are you an ambitious person? What are your ambitions for yourself, for your life, for your wife, for your kids, your career? What are your ambitions, your wildest dreams? One of the tensions of planting a church is that planting a church is, in some ways, an ambitious task. Uh, it, it's entrepreneurial, it's, it's risky, it's stepping out, and you don't plan a church to fail. Uh, you don't plan a church that it would wind up in two years' time. So the point of starting a new church is that it would succeed, that it would go well, that it would grow and get better and better and better. Uh, but the tension of that is, how does ambition fit as a follower of Jesus? How, does, how are we meant to be ambitious as Christians? It would seem like the Christian answer is, well, don't be too ambitious, right? Maybe it's not so bad to have a bit of ambition, but don't, you know, don't go too far. Don't make grand plans. Don't have high hopes. Instead, you know, do your best. Let go. Let God. He'll deal with the fruit. But is that really the case? Is that what we're meant to be? We're just meant to stifle our ambitions and be mediocre. Are we meant to have small dreams and small expectations? Well, in our passage today, we're going to find an answer out to that tension. We're going to find out what it means to be ambitious as a follower of Christ. And so I have three points for us today to investigate ambition as a Christian. Point number one, ambition disordered. Point number two, ambition reordered. And point number three, ambition rescued. So let's jump in and let's look at point number one, ambition disordered. Ambition disordered. 
I don't know if it's just you, but I like to use ignorance as an excuse for my failings. Uh, often, you know, I didn't know or I wasn't aware. That's why it didn't go so well. But unfortunately for the disciples in this sorry affair, the story that we just read, I don't believe ignorance is a valid excuse that they can play um, to explain this scenario. Let's just consider briefly the context that precedes this story of a mother and her boys seeking for greatness. In verse 17 uh, to uh, 19, Jesus is just competing with the rain. That wasn't even meant to come. Here we go. You just have to turn me up and just yell. Uh, well, actually, before that, uh, last week we saw how Jesus just told a parable that five sets of workers went out to work, some starting at 6 a.m., some starting at 5 p.m., and they all received the same pay. And Jesus ended that story by saying, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. And then, as we read in the readings today, Jesus gathered the 12 disciples, presumably away from the crowd of disciples who were also with them. So it's probably a big band of them heading towards Jerusalem. He gathers the 12 and he says to them for the third time, I'm going to be delivered over. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be flogged. I'm going to be crucified. And three days later, I'm going to rise again. So in their context, they've got a quality of rewards. In their context, they've got the, you know, the condemnation of the Son of God, the imminent crucifixion. In their context, Jesus has said, if you want to follow me, take up your cross. And then we get to this story. Let's read verse 20 to 22 again with that context in mind. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, came up to him with her sons. You know, nothing quite says like greatness in the kingdom, like, hey, mom, can you ask Jesus for us? And kneeling before him, she asked him something. Now, some commentators think that actually she's likely uh, Jesus's auntie. Uh, it's potential that James and John are related to Jesus, and so maybe she's playing the auntie card. And she asked him something, and he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. It's staggering, isn't it, in the context to think that this scenario actually happened. I mean, ignorance is not a feasible defense here. And what we have here is an insight into the insatiable ambition of the human heart for worldly greatness. An insatiable ambition that, sadly, myself all too easily can give in to. They've overlooked the suffering. They've overlooked the equality. They've overlooked the reality that Jesus' kingdom is given to the humble and the meek and those who seek and thirst after righteousness. They've overlooked all of that. And they're caught up in the expectation of what they determine the kingdom of heaven will be like. Perhaps they've got in their minds what Jesus told them at the end of chapter 19, that, you know, yeah, they've left everything. And Jesus said, they're going to sit on 12 thrones, ruling the 12 tribes of Israel. So maybe in their head, they're like, oh, maybe crucifixion for him, but for us, <laughs> thrones, <laughs> good news. And so in the anticipation of thrones, anticipation that somehow putting to side that Jesus will die, when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, literally the kingdom of heaven will be restored. That Jesus, this peasant carpenter, is going to be king. And they're itching. They're like, well, if someone's going to be on the left or right hand, it might as well be me. 
<laughs> I humbly put myself forward. <laughs> They're not content with just one of the 12 thrones. They want left and right-hand side, the two positions of prominence. Now, in humility, they allow Jesus to have the center place. But they want the left and the right. They want to be not just great, but greater than the rest of the 12. It's like uh, if you've ever been invited to be part of a bridal party uh, and, you know, you get asked by the groom or, or the bride if you're a bridesmaid, would you consider being in my bridal party? And then you're kind of waiting to see in which position you will be in the bridal party. You know, obviously you've got the best man, the maid of honor, and then the second best man and the second best woman and third and fourth and fifth and then the last one who's like I had they had to be invited for some reason <laughs> the disciples they want to be best man and other oh, best man not best woman uh, they, they, they want that position they're vying for it and and even if you say you don't care if you've ever been right on the very end you do feel it a little bit you feel it a little bit where you're like yeah I'm honored but I'm the least honored of all the honored ones there's something in our hearts that says, ah, oh, <laughs> what is that? There's something in all of us which perhaps deep down, even in the smallest ways, can be like these two brothers. I ask you again, what are your ambitions? When you come before Jesus, if you were to send your mum in before Jesus to get on her knees and plead, what would your wildest ambitions be? Now, we don't want to be too hard on these guys because, as I said, this is actually something I personally struggle with. It, it might not be something that you struggle with too hard, but for me, this is actually a battle, a constant battle. But there's also a commendable aspect to their request. Notice that they boldly believe that this peasant carpenter who's been walking around with them for three years will actually be a king with 12 thrones and will rule over Israel. So they have a misplaced ambition, a disordered ambition, but they do have faith. They believe that Jesus Christ before them is powerful enough to come into Israel and take over. And we ought to commend them for their faith. It's not that we're meant to have low thoughts and low views. They've got this big view of Christ and his kingdom, but their ambitions are disordered. How it all is meant to play out is in the wrong space, in the wrong order. But we ought not to have small views of Christ or small views of God. Big views of Christ. He's coming, he's king, he's ruling, there's thrones. But our role within it, that's where the disorder comes. So how will Jesus respond? Verse 22. I, I, I don't think Jesus is angry here. I think it's more likely in the soberness of what they're asking, there's probably a sense of like, oh, you do not know what you are asking. Their ignorance probably troubles him. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? The cup is an Old Testament reference to God's wrath and judgment that's poured out on unbelieving people. The cup all throughout the Old Testament represents judgment that, that God will pour upon the nations, that they'll have to drink this cup and then they will stagger, drunk and be destroyed. And now Jesus is saying, the cup that was meant for the nations, I'm going to drink. But perhaps they misinterpret it. They, they might think it's oh, the, the king's cup, the cup of glory. 
And so Jesus says, will you drink the cup? And they say, oh, we will. We are able to drink this cup. Verse 23, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared by my Father. Now, as we learn in church history, they do drink the cup. In Acts 12, 2, James is put to death, and we learn uh, that John is exiled in the island of Patmos as as a political prisoner for representing Christ. They do suffer the rest of their life. They do drink the cup. But whether they sit at the right or left hand of the Father, it wasn't for Christ to grant. He bows even then to the sovereignty of God the Father and allows God to make that determination. But it's not just the two disciples whose ambitions are disordered. Look at verse 24. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the brothers. And presumably their indignation is not, how dare you? You misunderstand. Christ is coming to suffer and die. How could you want to drink the cup? What's wrong with you? Their indignation is most likely, die, how dare you? You got in first. I wanted that position. You, James and John, left and right hand. It should be Peter, you know, or Judas perhaps. What we see on display here is a display of disordered ambition. Ambition that wants worldly greatness. Ambition that I'm tempted with and perhaps you are also. But next, point number two, after ambition disordered, we see ambition reordered. Jesus sees this as a teachable moment, an important moment. And in fact, this is a speech that will go down as one of the most remarkable leadership addresses of all human history. This leadership talk, this three sentences, has changed the nature of human leadership for the past two millennia. Turn the world upside down. Let's have a look at it. First, he exposes their disordered worldly ambition in verse 25. Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. He's drawing a comparison. You want to be left and right hand? You're you're just like the Gentiles. That's how they rule. That's how the worldly system is set up. You get to the top, You get the authority, you get the perch, you get the power, you get the position, you get the status, you get the seat. That's how they go. It's like in, if you've ever seen uh, the the TV show Suits, uh, I I like that show because it it resonates with my worldly ambition. I think of wanting to be, what's it, Harvey, what's his last name? Spectre. Spectre. Harvey Specter, I just think, oh man, what a boss. The suits he wears, the hair, the internal lift to his apartment, the driver that picks him up, the, the money to be able to just write a check, the, be, the authority to just say yes, no, do this, do that. You think, oh, that appeals to me and my sinful nature, my worldly ambition. Verse 26, Jesus defies that in us. It shall not be so among you. It shall not be so 
among you. It's an incredibly strong rebuke. You want this. This is how the world works. This is how the kingdoms of the world are set up among you, among my community, among the kingdom of heaven. It shall not be so among you. This is a forbidding that we should take to heart. And let it stand over us as a church. Let it never be the case that anyone, especially myself, would ever be like this. A Gentile lording it over, reveling in the authority, reveling in the status, using others to get what we want. It shall not be so. And may it be that as a congregation, you never allow that to happen. You never give in to the worldly systems and structures. We love a hero. In times, we love people to have authority. We love people to tell us what to do. We want that as people at times. It shall not be so amongst us. Never let it be that we become a church that is like the world in its leadership. But that doesn't mean that we flatten the curve. It doesn't mean that we remove all ambition and leadership and authority. That's not Jesus' plan here. He doesn't work like that. Jesus doesn't often obliterate desires. Instead, what he does is reorder them redirect them, repurpose them. We were inbuilt with ambition. The Lord of the heaven and earth, when he created human beings, he said to Adam and Eve, take dominion over the entire earth that I created. Subdue it. Rule over it. So it's not that we ought not to be ambitious. It's not that we ought not to rule and reign and and take dominion and, and lead and have authority. But how we do it is all important. And so let's see how Jesus reorders our ambitions, redefines them, redirects them, rescues them. Verse 26 and 27. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Notice the parallel structure. Jesus is making the same point twice and getting stronger each time. It shall not be so among you. How shall it be? You want to be great? You want to be great in this world? Jesus doesn't say that's a bad ambition. He says, if you want to be great, awesome. Be a servant. And he goes even further. You, you don't want to just be great. You want to be first. You want to be the first among the greatest be a slave. Jesus takes our ambition for greatness, hardwired into us by the Father upon creation. We, we bear his image as rulers, as he is ruler. We bear his image as sovereign ones. He says, you want that? Awesome. The way that we will do it, the way the kingdom of heaven works, is we rule by serving. We come first by coming last. We live by dying. We go to the top by going to the bottom. As C.J. Mahaney summarizes in his book, Humility, True Greatness, he says, true greatness is serving others to the glory of God. Friends, it may not be very Australian to be ambitious, but I think in the kingdom we ought to be ambitious. 
but our, true, our ambition should be for true greatness. And true greatness, as defined by the Savior, is serving others to the glory of God. Not just serving others, because you could serve others in the Christian community for your own glory, couldn't you? You could be like, great. So Jesus said, the greatest among you will be a slave. So if I'm a servant of everyone, then everyone will look at me and think, wow, what a great servant. But that's, that's still worldly ambition. It's still coming back to you. The point is, serve to the glory of God. Greatness and firstness are linked to laying down your life for the sake of others, not laying down your ambitions for greatness. Jesus reorders our desires. He doesn't destroy them. And so I think a a, a good way to summarize this passage is this. True greatness is a worthy ambition. Agreed. True greatness is a worthy ambition. True greatness is a worthy ambition. It's God-given to desire it. So let's aspire to true greatness. Let's be ambitious to be servants and slaves of others. But Jesus' leadership lesson is not just a speech. Jesus' leadership lesson is displayed in his very life. Look at verse 28. And even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. For Christ, this isn't just a principle leadership that he puts out in a podcast and is like, well, go take it or leave it. This is how he lives. He demonstrates and displays true greatness by actually doing it. He came from heaven to earth not to be served, when he's the only one who truly deserves it, and instead he serves others. And even to the point of giving himself as a ransom for many. William Lane, in his commentary on Mark, in the parallel passage, comments that this is what Christ has done. The reversal of all human ideas of greatness and rank was achieved when Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. The great reversal happens. Jesus reverses it, goes from the top to the bottom, and and displays it to us. And this statement here, that he came to be a ransom for many, is one of the is actually the clearest statement in Matthew's gospel so far of what Jesus came to do. He didn't just come to serve and wash feet. His service goes to the point of actual death, self-sacrifice and substitution for our sins and in our place. The word ransom is a, is a word that links back to the slave market, that to buy someone out of being a prisoner of war or buy someone out of slavery, yet to pay an incredibly high price. And we were all slaves to sin, slaves to worldly ambition, slaves to desires for our own greatness rather than the greatness of God. And Jesus said, I have come to pay the ransom price with my blood and my body like we celebrated in communion to buy you out of that slavery and into new service to God. And so here we have an incredible poignant moment in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus has finally declared This is what he's come to do. 
the Son of God, slain on a cross, paying our ransom. And before this cross, and we ought to see Christ ransomed upon this cross, because before this cross, there ought to be no puffed chests, no boasting, no bragging, no thrones in that sense. Because before Christ ransomed upon this cross crucified, we see our sin and who we are, that we deserve that type of punishment, that we deserve that type of shame and ridicule and disgusting reality. And so whenever we're tempted to pursue worldly greatness and think that we are something in and of ourselves, we ought to see Christ displayed on that cross, ransomed, becoming the lowest, because that's who we actually are. So that we could be sons of him and could eventually have the crown of life, put put in this exalted position that we do not deserve. And so then before the cross, instead of boasting in ourselves and our achievements and our worldly accomplishments, who do we boast in? But Christ himself. And so the cross corrects our ambitions. The cross corrects our ambitions. It teaches us that true greatness here on earth is found not in crowns but in crosses. The greatest one who ever lived took upon himself a cross. And so true greatness is found not in crowns but in crosses. And so that ought to be our worthy ambition, to be truly great like Christ. So, our ambitions, we're seeing, are disordered by our sin. We want to be great. We want to have position. We want status. Even if it's small, we we want that. But instead of removing this desire, Jesus reorders it and says, serve. That's, That's what I think is great. So what does this look like in our daily lives? How are we actually meant to practically apply this? Well, Point number three, ambition rescued. Ambition rescued. Uh, There's a good book I haven't read, but I've read parts of it by Dave Harvey, who used to be a Sovereign Grace pastor called Rescuing Ambition. And that's where I got this idea of ambition rescued from. Because the reality of this passage is, it's very easy to understand. Okay, we all knew it before coming in. You've all read it, you've heard it. Son of man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom of many. Okay, we should serve. Very easy to understand, but incredibly difficult to consistently apply. Why is that? Why is it so hard to consistently pursue true greatness as a servant? Paul Tripp says this Ambition is a war. Oh, ambition is war. A battle between the sin driven pursuit of autonomy, self sufficiency, and self-glory, and a humble desire that everything you do would reflect the one thing that is excellent in every way, the glory of God. Ambition disordered, reordered. It's a war. There's a glory war going on. We want it, but God deserves it. And that's why it's a battle for you and I every morning to wake up and serve. Because we wake up unbelieving, thinking, I want to be served today. Please, would someone just serve me? (laughs) I've been going hard. I've been doing this. Please, just serve me. Kids, serve me. Work, serve me. Friends, just 
just a little bit. Just traffic, serve me. <laughs> but instead, we're called to something different. We have worldly ambitions. This war, we, we crave to be served, to be praised, to be known. Whereas Jesus says we're to have a godly ambition, which craves instead to serve, to praise, and to know. That's the war. We, we ought to be waking up in the morning thinking, how can I serve? How can I praise others? How can I know others and their stories better? And we know both of these at the same time often. Often we're serving with our eyes closed. This is for you, Lord. But then we're tempted. Is anyone watching? Is anyone going to thank me? No? Okay. Uh, keep going. And we can often have this tension in, in our life, in our serving, in our workplace. We want to serve and be served all at the same time. In true greatness, C.J., says this in his book, Humility, uh, Sermon on it, rather. In our lives and in our churches, there ought to be the distinct absence of a selfish ambition and the distinct presence of godly ambition. So again, it's easy to understand but hard to apply. So how do we actually grow to have a godly ambition, to be ruled by this ambition to be great in Christ's eyes? I think two questions will serve you. So if you've got a pen... I mean, you can remember them. Two questions I think will serve you. How do you pursue true greatness today? Question number one, ask yourself, who can I serve today? Who can I serve today? And secondly, how can I best serve them? Simple. Who can I serve and how can I best serve them? Uh, let's apply it to a few areas of our lives. Let, let's look at work first. We'll look at work, home, and the church. Who can I serve in my workplace today? You want to be truly great tomorrow, Monday, go to work? Ask yourself this question, who can I serve? Come to work with an ambition to serve rather than be served. Come thinking, how can I serve my boss today, my colleagues, my clients? And then ask, not just how can I, who can I serve, how can I best serve them? How can I truly care for my co-workers? How can I be more invested in, in their lives and, and care about their hopes, their dreams, even their projects? How can I create community in the workplace and make it an enjoyable place to be, celebrating birthdays and holidays and special moments? How can I best serve them? Maybe by avoiding gossip and slander. When, when people are talking down, you, you just remove yourself so at least you're not adding fuel to the fire. How can I best serve? Well, work hard. Work hard without the need to be thanked or to be seen, but just do it because in it you're serving God ultimately. How can I best serve my customers? Well, be a part of companies that charge fair prices. And do not participate in anything that rips people off. Do not participate in anything which is unwholesome or ungodly. And if you're in a, in a consistent company where that's happening, consider leaving. Because you're not serving people well. Ultimately, in a sense, you're serving yourself. Because like, I need this money, even if it rips people off, I'm going I'm to take the money for myself. Who can I serve? How can I best 
serve them at work. You can be truly great at work tomorrow. You can have godly ambition at work tomorrow if you ask those questions. Now, obviously, it might turn out poorly for you. You might get overlooked. You might miss out on promotion. You might get treated poorly. You might just get treated as that one person who, oh, they'll do it. But you'll be great in the eyes of one who counts. Now, there is a tension. Obviously, you know, Jesus isn't telling us to just be a complete doormat and, and completely just do whatever anyone wants all the time. There's a tension, and if you're trying to find out what that tension is, talk about it in community. Can't go through all the nuances here. But the instinct, how, who can I serve? How can I best serve them? Same as at home. Who can I serve in my household, whether you're married with kids, just married, or at home, or single? You can serve yourself then. <laughs> if you're at home on your own, who can I serve today in my home? Me! Yes! <laughs> How can I best serve them? <laughs> Coffee, <laughs> donuts, <laughs> awesome. <laughs> but if you have more than just yourself at home in your household, husbands be asking, how can I best serve my wife and my kids today if I have kids and a wife? Coming home, you've worked hard, Punched off at work, punch back on at home, clock back in. Home is not refuge, it, it's service again. And what a privilege. True greatness comes when you walk in ready to serve. Being proactive and being present. Wives, how can you serve your husbands at home? Thinking, I'm his helper. That's my God-given role. How can I help him? How can I help him in his, in his calling on his life, in his work, in his parenting? How can I be his helper? Rather than how can he help me, how can I help him? And husbands, your, your calling is to lead by loving, which means sacrificial service, but you're not the helper. And finding that tension is an interesting one. With your children... How can you best serve your children? Well, this passage is a good warning. Don't be like James and John's mum. Worldly ambition, fueled with this, this mixed desire for the greatness of my boys. <laughs> you know, that mama's desire to see her sons, the left and right hand of the kingdom, the Messiah's kingdom. That's what she wanted. And it's easy for us to buy into that as parents to see our kids win, to get the best, to be the best, to be seen as the best. Instead, point out to your children and make examples of truly great people so that when they think of greatness, they think of the servants in their church, not the best players on the basketball court or on the footy field. When they think of greatness, they'll think of you know, various people without naming names in this church that give their lives away for others. That's that's how we can serve our children, rather than constantly saying, you, you should be amazing, you should be this and that, you should be, be rich and famous and all these things. No, no, no. Say, you should be like this person. They give their life away. And finally, godly ambition at church, asking yourself the question, who can I serve in my community and how can I best serve them? And you know, as the pastor of this church, I get a bird's eye view of just how well all of you do this. 
it's a happy place to be as I look out upon you and I see so many truly great people sitting before me. Friends, you do this so well. The Spirit of Christ reigns in you. You lay down your lives for others in your life groups, on Sunday gatherings, in many and various ways. It's truly a privilege to be counted as a member of this church amongst such great, truly great people. People that won't be in the newspaper, most likely. They won't be heralded. But the Lord sees you. The Lord sees every act of service, unseen, unthanked, unknown. And let's continue. Let's continue asking, okay, yeah, we're two and a half years in as a church plant. Let's keep asking, who can I serve in the members of this church and how can I best serve them? Because we ought to be ambitious as a church. What could be more ambitious than Jesus after his resurrection, before his ascension into heaven, saying to the 12 disciples and potentially the 120 gathered, go into all the world and make disciples. That's an ambitious task. But they weren't meant to make little monuments to themselves. They were to make disciples of him. And so as a church, we ought to be ambitious for our neck of the woods, for Parramatta, to go into this area and make disciples of Jesus Christ. Not growing Sovereign Grace Church Parramatta, Sovereign Grace Churches Australia, but growing disciples of Christ, finding new people through Alpha and walk-up evangelism, growing Christ's kingdom. We ought not to play it safe. Risk is right in the kingdom. We should be ambitious as a church. We should not start toning things down as a church plant into mediocrity and safety. Instead, we should be going further and faster and riskier and more sacrificial. We ought to be ambitious, not for ourselves though, for the fame of Jesus Christ's name. And the reward? Well, Again, C.J. Mahaney says this in his sermon, True Greatness. Serving for others for the glory of God makes us truly great in the eyes of God. When we're full of ambition to serve others, we are truly great in God's sight. And if you truly value God's applause over everyone else's, then you can have his smile as you serve in secret in unknown ways. Isaiah 66.2 says this, But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. God loves the humble and opposes the proud. And the relief is this. Here's the good news, just to end. True greatness is achievable. True greatness, you, everyone here can be truly great. Worldly greatness relies on luck and opportunity, circumstance, success, being in the right place at the right time, right, knowing the right people, having the right degrees, being seen, being put forward, being known, being cheered, being loved, and keeping it up, maintaining it for decades. That's exhausting. In Christ's kingdom, true greatness can be achieved right after this service, as you seek to be more interested in others than you are in yourself. As soon as you go home, to be more interested in others than you are yourself. As soon as you go to work, to be more interested in others than you are of yourself. It's liberating. We don't have to be amazing. We don't have to be epic. We don't have to be known. 
to be great. And so enjoy true greatness. Enjoy the relief that it is to be a servant and a slave because you will be great in the eyes of God. Yes, it requires a choice. It requires a decision. It requires sacrifice. But heaven will see and you will have the pleasure of God. To me, that is a gift and a welcome relief from my worldly ambitions. And may it be a relief and a gift to you. Rest in true greatness, because true greatness is a worthy ambition. And let's be ambitious for it. Let's undo the disordered ambitions we have. Let's reorder them for Christ and his kingdom. And let's rescue them day in, day out, as we ask, who should I serve and how can I best serve them? Let's pray. Lord God, I pray and ask that you would bless this preaching of your word and you would bless us, oh Lord, transform our hearts to be lowly like your son, gentle and meek, to not put ourselves forward, to put Christ forward, to be servants with no need to be seen. Help us to ask, who should I serve? How can I best serve them? And Lord, may we receive your smile, your applause, and your reward in the process. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.